Time for the Friday edition of Hancock and Kelly. You two belong together. John Hancock, Michael Kelly on News Radio 1120, KMOX. Happy Friday, St. Louis. I'm Michael Kelly. That guy right over there is John Hancock. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Got up on the right side of the bed this morning. On Friday mornings, I come in here and we prepare for the show. And typically, John spends the next 20 minutes talking to me about, now, who would be a... You know, a three-time Gold Glove winner who played for the Houston Astros, Kelly. Now, I'm lucky to know who our second baseman well, was. Well, Cesar Cedeno. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky enough to know, lucky just to know who our second baseman is currently for the Cardinals. Nobody you knows. You play this game. Tell everybody what it is. The Immaculate Grid, Michael. Yeah, it's, Immaculate. Uh, my son in Chicago, our NFL insider, John Hancock. Right. Uh, he and I get on and, and do the grid in the morning and compare notes. Uh, he's a huge baseball fan, as am I. And so it's kind of our little father-son connection over the course and, of the many months. And you bring it in and try to include me as well, but uh, I know nothing, and James O'Sullivan, who uh, operates the board for us, you two share notes. He knows some stuff. Oh, James O'Sullivan. James knows his stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, no question about that. James is a go-to uh, con- consultation for me on the, on these matters, but you, my traveling I, friend, I had a brush with a uh, future Cardinal Hall of Famer. Boom! It, where was this brush? So yesterday, so I was it, flying it was at an airport back to St. Louis, and I had to stop through Atlanta. Atlanta. Now you've been to Atlanta's Hartsfield airport. Air, I know it gets a bad rap. I love it. Well, I think it's nice. It's clean. It's well functioning. That airport has was one of the main drivers of the economic boom that is Atlanta, Georgia today. It was that airport that really did it. So you're there. Yeah, so I was uh, had to switch terminals. So you get on this little train and you go to another terminal, and then you come up from the basement into this little center area, which is almost like uh, where four uh, pathways come into a cross, if you will. So I get to the top oh. of the... Trying to vision four pathways coming into well, a Well, it's where four, you know, they meet and you, you no, and it's the, in center the center area yeah. and then you can disperse out from there. Oh. So I get to the top of the escalator. I'm on my phone texting with somebody and uh, doing some work and nearly run into a gentleman who's, I see out of my peripherals, about three inches taller than me. Big guy. So I put my phone down and I realize it's Adam Wainwright. Adam Wainwright. So I look at, at him and I, I said, in Atlanta. Uh, hey, Adam. Thanks for everything you've done for St. Louis. And he stopped his walking. He looked directly at me and he said, thank you, sir. And I didn't want to bother him. Nobody was recognizing him. He had a ball cap on. He was with his wife and another couple. Well, who would recognize Adam Wainwright with a baseball head on? Well, I mean, it was Atlanta, so, I mean, you know. But he wasn't wearing a Cardinal uniform, so it would have been a little more difficult. Uh-huh. And uh, I didn't want to bother him and, and, and engage him in conversation Buddy, where it would have turned here, into a little, little okay, yeah, here we we're, go. we're broadcast. Professionals yeah, 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 right yeah. You're in an airport. Uh-huh. You've made eye contact with Adam Wayne. Had a conversation with he him. He is thanking you for being yeah. nice to him. Right. You ask him to come on the show is yeah. what you do. I've well, got a little show on KMOX. So. I'm sure you've heard of John Hancock. And then, <laughs> and then you ask him to come on the show. That's what you do. Well, and I had... Um I had reached out to you immediately because I know this would have been right up your alley. Oh, my and said, gosh. Hey, I just ran into Adam Wainwright, yeah. and you sent me a letter that he wrote to St. Louis Dear yesterday, Louis. which I wish I would have read. I read on the airplane after meeting him. Yeah. I wish I would have been able to read it great prior to running into him. Really great piece. He walks through his career, 
Uh, I mean, he's just a great guy. Adam Wainwright, great pitcher, even better human being. And we, thanks to Michael Kelly, he will not be a guest on the program. Today. No, but uh, he will get a mutual award here soon. Trusted information, live and local. From the award-winning KMOX Newsroom. You are listening to the Hancock and Kelly Show on KMOX. You can listen to us on 1120 AM. If you're here inside the 270 corridor, mm. if you turn into 98.7 FM, man, we come in stereo. That's how I listen to KMOX these days. I never thought I wouldn't be on 1120, but I am now listening to 98.7. And if you listen to us on 98.7, you think you're listening to NPR. Oh, well, it's a gorgeous day out. Fresh air. As people are starting to wonder whether or not the leaves will continue to fall. That's exactly right. Hey, it is John Hancock, Michael Kelly. This is our political segment. And, it John, uh, it's got to be a disappointing week uh, for the Republican oh. Party. Huge election wins for yeah. the Democrats in not both Virginia, big. Ohio, uh, and Pennsylvania. Yeah, Pennsylvania. The only bright spot for the Republican Party appearing to be the state of Mississippi, where the governor of Mississippi was uh, reelected. Uh, not a good day for the Republican Party. What's wrong that the Republicans keep losing elections? Well, there's a few things. And, and so, you know, my over-exuberant friend here is, uh, as many Democrats are, they're kind of over-claiming what this actually meant on Tuesday. Uh, but, you know, I think it's fair to say certainly the Virginia case where there were no statewide elections, so you just had state legislative races, House and, and Senate, Republicans expected and thought that they were going to take control of the state Senate. They already had a narrow majority in the state House. And what ended up happening is that the Democrats took both chambers uh, and Republican governor there, Glenn Youngkin, uh, you know, got a little bit of a rebuke because they really were all in the GOP to take control of the legislative branch. A couple of things in play in Virginia. First, Virginia is a very suburban state. And Democrats were picking up seats in those suburban areas, Alexandria, McLean, places like that. And, uh, and the abortion issue was a factor there, clearly. And, and I think just the general erosion in the suburbs that we've seen by the GOP over the past decade continues. You know, when, when Youngkin got elected originally as governor in 2021, the suburbs came through and voted for him. And he ran a different kind of campaign. But those seats, those suburban legislative seats, whether they're congressional seats or state legislative seats, are getting increasingly difficult for Republicans to win. We saw that in Virginia. Yeah, but, John, here you are. You're spinning it all. I'm over-exuberant. If the, if the Republicans would have had the night that the Democrats did, you'd be saying this foretells bad things for President Biden. And that's the key point here is typically the president in power loses these types of elections. That's not happening. You've, you've said that it could be abortion, et cetera. Could it also be this MAGA extremism narrative in Donald Trump? Well, you had the Kentucky governor, a Republican candidate, was endorsed by Donald Trump, but he was basically an establishment figure and a, and a good candidate, ran a pretty good campaign. Uh, do I think Donald Trump hurts the GOP in the suburbs? I do. And uh, do I think it, he hurts us with female voters, particularly young working women? I do. Uh, does Donald Trump bring voters to the table that otherwise wouldn't vote for a Republican? Yeah, he does. And uh, we saw all of that kind of play out in 2016, and it played out differently in 2020. And since then, the, there's not really been a good election night for the GOP, and this was yet another one of those. I do think the long-term implications of the abortion question, though, 
are largely going to go away because we've got enough empirical evidence now, state after state after state, including very red, very conservative states like Kansas, uh, are passing uh, abortion protection constitutional amendments into their state constitution. I suspect when it's on the ballot in Missouri, it will pass as well because that's where public sentiment is. That doesn't mean I agree with it. I'm pro-life, but I, you know, just looking at it as a cold observer, that's where this is headed. And, and I think once states codify that, I think the issue will be a lot less impactful on candidate elections going forward. You have to wonder why the Republican candidates uh, running for statewide office in Missouri continue to hold to this absolutism on abortion based on what you just said, but we'll dig into that another day. Uh, You and I have uh, talked about whether or not President Biden will be the Democratic nominee for the Democrats. There's evidence starting today that, in fact, he is going to be that nominee. John Hancock, he's filing to run in the state of South Carolina and so it begins, Joe Biden's quest for re-election. Yeah, I think this is, if this is what ends up playing out, and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris end up being the Democrat standard bearers next year, I think they have made a colossal political miscalculation. I really do. And it's hard for me to sit and look at what's unfolding before my eyes and not think that there's a coordinated effort going on out there. You go back and look, I don't know, two months ago, New York Times columnist um, you know, Walter Isaacson writes a piece speculating that it might be time for Biden to go. You're seeing more and more people speculate that the Democrats speculate that they want Biden to go. All the polling indicates that Democrat voters don't want Joe Biden. They would rather he not run in 24. You had David Axelrod come out last weekend and say, you know, maybe he ought to think better of this. It just seems to me that I don't think any of these are organic, isolated instances. You know, you and I do enough politics to know that stuff is planned and coordinated. And it looks to me very much like there is a coordinated effort to ease Joe Biden out of the White House run sometime probably next month before the primaries start. And... Replace him with, I think it's going to be Gavin Newsom. And I think if the Democrats don't do that, they're really putting at risk uh, victory for the White House next year. Well, we'll keep our eyes on that. I have been one of those people who's been uh, wavered a little bit whether or not Joe Biden would run, not run. But uh, sure appears that all the pieces are being put in place. What's your political sense, though? Uh, Uh, John, I've said it to you. I mean, look, we are a party that's going to make the argument to the voters that, hey, we're the adults in the room. Yep. While everybody, while they're out here acting a fool, wanting to shut down Ukraine and, you know, play games with people's personal lives, we're the adults. Well, we are the adults who've been watching for the last two years our president deteriorate in front of our eyes. Not that he's been a bad president, not that he's done bad things. We just sit there and worry about what this is going to look like a year from now. And if you're going to make the argument that you're the adult in the room, don't you have to deal with what's happening inside your own house? You would think so. I mean, and sometimes, you know, sometimes the uh, when the adult in the room gets to a certain age, the kids kind of have to take over and start making decisions. <laughs> well, but, I guess David Axelrod's playing that and, role. And, but here, you know, the thing about all of this is, the the Democrats. Well, I don't know. Did you see the poll that just came out about Biden's 
approach to Israel right. among Democrat voters. Did you see this? Yeah. 50% favor what he's doing, and it was like 44% were didn't favor. There's a real divide, but, but a I don't deep see, divide. Say there was a change going to happen, and it's going to be Gavin Newsom. I agree with you. I think that's the person that's obvious to be the candidate, mm-hmm. or uh, Governor Pritzker. That's not going to change. Their policies are going to be almost exactly the same as what Joe Biden is pushing. Yeah, I mean, they could they could nuance it some, I suppose, yeah. uh, because they're not sitting in the chair. But uh, yeah, I mean that. But there's a deep divide there, and when you're when you're that deeply fractured, and the Republican Party's fractured too. Yeah. Make no mistake about that. But um, the one thing I will say about Donald Trump and Joe Biden is that in terms of turnout, there will be more pro-Trump passionate voters than there will be pro-Biden passionate voters. But the number of anti-Trump passionate voters is going to be very high as well. Yeah, and that will translate regardless of who the candidate is for the Democrats. And uh, boy, uh, President Biden took another blow yesterday, John. Senator Joe Manchin, the West Virginia senator, uh, who's very moderate, uh, left of center. He's been, but, a, he's uh, been a thorn in the side for you But guys. has been a thorn in the side. He's helped the Democrats keep the majority. He announced yesterday, had enough, I'm stepping out, and uh, this seat surely will go to the Republicans. Well, Manchin wasn't going to be able to hold it had he run again. Um, so, you know, and when you look at the makeup of the Senate, the Republicans, if we don't screw this up, which we're very capable of doing, but if we don't screw this up in 24, we should take the, the U.S. Senate, just given the seats that are up and in play. Uh, but, you know, we're capable of screwing it up. But, yeah, the Manchin case, and the, the real interesting thing here with Manchin, of course, is he and his buddy Mitt Romney now are going to be touring around together and a lot of speculation that maybe that's a presidential third-party ticket. Right. We have this no labels that's hanging out there. Could they be the candidates that would go into that? It will be interesting to watch. I think both of them, uh, even though they may be quite moderate, have major issues with Donald Trump. Uh, So I don't see them uh, going in and making it easier for Donald Trump to get elected. At the same time, John, uh, one of those things that Republicans could screw up on, and by the way, many Republicans in the United States Senate are saying if we default on funding the government, November the 17th is what we kicked the can down the road here, too. And Speaker Johnson's got to do something. I don't know, John. Do you think he can get something done? Does he have the kicking ability inside of his uh, caucus? Well, we're going to learn a little bit about Mike Johnson over the course of the next week because... Uh, he's got this train uh, barreling down the track straight at him, and passing appropriations bills is not going to happen by Friday. So let's just set that aside. So there's two options. Let it close or pass a continuing resolution to fund the government. Now, I think Johnson will be able to put together a continuing resolution, ironically, that looks an awful lot like the one Kevin McCarthy did a month ago that ended up costing him the speakership, but I think Johnson will be given a little grace period, but this is a time for him to perform, and we'll see if he can do it. That's John Hancock. I'm Michael Kelly. We're going to step aside to check in on the news. Hey, when we come back in the next hour, we've got a great show for you. We're going to talk about Veterans Day. We're also going to spend a little bit of time talking about the depleting population of the St. Louis area. Interesting stuff. And for that matter, the entire state of Missouri. After this, right here on the greatest radio station in the world, KMOX. Time for the Friday edition of Hancock and Kelly. You two belong together. John Hancock, Michael Kelly on News Radio 1120, KMOX.
I associate this song with fireworks. That's John Philip Sousa there yeah. for the uninitiated. He was the inventor of the sousaphone, which really? is ironic. And what is the sousaphone? Well, it's like a tuba thing that you march with. Okay. And uh, did you play it? No, John Philip Sousa. So you just going to play the role of Cliff Clavin today and just put out random facts for us? Well, I thought I would uh, try and enhance your knowledge base, Michael, which is relatively easy to do. Most grateful, my friend, John Hancock, Michael Kelly for the Hancock and Kelly Show. We're with you all the way till 10 o'clock. Then we're going to join our friends Amy and Chris. I'm looking forward to talking to Amy. She's newly engaged. We'll visit with her about that. But right now in studio, we have Mike, Mark Sundelov, the director of Soldiers Memorial Military Museum right here in downtown St. Louis. Mark, thanks so much for coming in studio. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Well, Veterans tomorrow, Day. Veterans yeah. Day. So tomorrow is Veterans Day, and uh, the big celebration's taking place right here at 18th and Olive at our beautiful Soldiers Memorial. Yeah, let's hear it for Tell the us. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Tell. By the way, uh, Mark is a veteran as well. You're a veteran of the uh, which which branch? The Air Force. Well, thank you for your best service. Food. Uh, They've got the best food. That's right. Military. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So tell Tell us uh, exactly what's going down tomorrow. Well, tomorrow's the best day of the year to be at Soldiers Memorial. The uh, There's a 5K run that's put on by St. Patrick's Center that starts at 9 a.m. that supports homeless veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, parade steps off at 1030 uh, from 18th in, in Market and comes down Market uh, to Soldiers Memorial. And that's a place you want to be. And uh, watching that parade come by right the uh, front of Soldiers Memorial on Chestnut Street between 13 and 14. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, the run uh, is being put on by St. Patrick Center? Yep, this is their their annual run. They're, they're part of the uh, Veterans Day festivities uh, is to put that run on, and, and then they use those proceeds to support homeless veterans. And tomorrow we have the ceremony starts at 1030. Who's participating? What's happening? Sure. So uh, after the uh, after the parade, immediately after the parade, we kick into the ceremony. And some key parts of that, uh, the Missouri National Guard Hall of Fame will be doing their 2023 inductions. Uh, so that'll be interesting. And then Major General William Blaylock is the uh, former commander of the 35th Infantry Division, and he'll be the uh, Grand Marshal giving the uh, keynote address. But then there's a lot of uh, kind of fun things too there'll be a little poster making station for kids so they can make a make a sign to cheer on those in the parade uh the midwest off-roaders this is an all-female jeep group uh, will be here and and they'll be parking their jeeps so the kids can uh, check out the jeeps and, and meet those those fun women and uh and and some cool things to do yeah Mark Sunlove is our guest. He's the director of the Soldiers Memorial Military Museum here in St. Louis. And I remember going into that museum as a young lad. It was a World War I-centric facility. The exhibits were a little, you know, dusty. <laughs> uh, and, and some years ago, the Taylor family plowed a ton of money into renovating this facility. They included the Missouri History Museum as part of the, and that's your role now as a director. This thing has been so transformed. And folks, if you've not been in this facility since it's been redone, the exhibits, there's three of them uh, and it's not just World War One anymore. It covers all of the military history of this country. It's a fascinating place. Tell us what's going on at the Missouri uh, uh, Soldiers Memorial. Yeah, I think that that renovation was just transformational. And, and as you said, the exhibits are wonderful. That that main level uh, of the museum there, the, t- the two main exhibition galleries, uh, tell the story of St. Louis and military service all the way from the Revolutionary War, very Few people know that there was a Revolutionary War battle here in St. Louis, all the way up through modern day. But then in our 
our lower level, I'd really like to bring attention to, um, we have a special temporary exhibition called Vietnam at War and Mm. at Home. And it looks at St. Louis and St. Louisans and how it was involved and we were involved with the Vietnam War, and that that's only up until May, so another six months. It's been up for a year, uh, but it's a, a tremendous exhibit, and I uh, hope folks can check that out tomorrow after they uh, after they watch. Really the ought to check that out, and you know, Vietnam is such a fundamentally different kind of war that this country's ever fought. It was very unpopular here at home. It spawned numerous protests all over the country, and people died protesting the Vietnam War, and it's got a very unique and special history. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think the the, the public, the community, was involved with protests and, and, and some supporting as well. Then other parts of the story that we tell in that ex- exhibit are some of the industries in, uh, in St. Louis that were involved with that, the uh, uh, McDonald uh, Douglas uh, yeah. producing the F-4 aircraft, which was the, the primary fighter bomber of that war. And, you know, I think probably a lot of folks don't realize that, but really uh, deep St. Louis connections uh, throughout that conflict. Yeah. And more recently, of course, we've had the Gulf War. We had the liberation of Kuwait, uh, 20 years in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of recent military history being made. Uh, in this country, and all of that Im- impacts St. Louis as well. Yeah, you know, one of the uh, really powerful artifacts in the uh, gallery is a improvised explosive device, which is, you know, basically looks like a, a muffler, essentially, on exhibit that's uh, in the gallery there. And it's 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 astonishing because you walk into the gallery and first you see this uh, A-15 turret that uh, was produced here in St. Louis for World War II. They were on bomber aircraft. It's a nose turret. It's incredibly complex uh uh, gun and uh, a turret that was on that on that plane, um, and then you as you walk around the gallery, you come around to modern day, and here is this IED, this improvised explosive device, and you know how that the the death and the damage that was uh, done by those to our service members uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So it's it's really quite compelling. And, and so many of us have personal history that ties to military service. If we didn't ourselves serve. And I think, you know, my dad, when my dad was alive, there were Civil War veterans alive. I mean, you think about how close we really are to massive major events in our history. And there are events militarily and with veterans that touch literally all of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the story that we really try to tell in the exhibits is is, is just that. Uh, you know, these wars and these conflicts you know, we tend to think of them happening overseas, distant places, but they really do uh, reach right into our community and in our families, and uh, and we're all impacted in one way or another. So, you know, helping to share that education with visitors and explain, you know, these are things that have happened, and and your life is different now because of them. Great place to take the grandkids, by the way, uh, to kind of teach the grandkids about some of the rich history that this community has and our military. And it all starts tomorrow morning right here downtown at the Veterans Memorial here in downtown St. Louis, right there at 18th and Olive. 9 a.m. is the St. Patrick's Day race. Yes, sir. And can professionals like Hancock race in that race, oh, yeah. or is oh, it yeah. only for fun? Fo- no, okay, he can, he can do it. He's fleet of foot. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you: Are there defibrillators? <laughs> <laughs> we have one in the building. All right, good. And the I'll Veterans Day parade stops off at ten thirty, right there. Ten thirty. And correct. if people wanted to go to a website that has all this information, where could they go? Go to mohistory.com.
O-R-G. That's Mark Sunlove. He's the director of Soldiers Memorial Military Museum right here in downtown St. Louis. Come on out. Let's celebrate our veterans. Mark, thank you for your service and what you've done as well. Thank you very much. It's Hancock and Kelly. We're going to talk about our demographics in the St. Louis area and Missouri. It isn't good, folks. After this on KMOX. Now, back to Hancock and Kelly. Sponsored by Insperity. HR that makes a difference. On News Radio 1120. KMOX. Happy Friday, St. Louis. It's Hancock and Kelly. And last week, John, you and I were talking about uh, a meeting I had gone to where I had uh, uh, learned that we have a real problem in the St. Louis area where more people are dying than are being born. And we see our population that's kind of leaving not only the St. Louis region, but for that matter, the state of Missouri. So we thought we'd dig a little deeper into it. And joining us right now on the Quiver River Electric Guest Line is Ness Sandoval. He's a professor of demography and sociology at St. Louis University. Uh, Professor, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me today. You call this a demographic winter, what's happening in Missouri. Uh, Can you speak globally to what's happening to the population changes in Missouri and why you call it a demographic winter? Yeah, so um, so what's happening, and it, it's happening across the United States in several, in several of the states, but one of the core transitions that we look at are uh, the ratio between births and deaths. And so we always think about if your population is growing, it should be growing because you're having more babies born than people that are dying. But when the reverse happens and you have more people dying than are born, then you've lost your ability to grow naturally. And what this means economically is that you, you become dependent on other states, other regions um, for their population to come to your region. So we call this migration. So these are the, the three core demographic transitions of population growth. And so for Missouri uh, and the St. Louis metropolitan region, we have lost our ability to grow naturally. So we have become dependent on other people migrating to the state and to the region for our schools, for our jobs, uh, et cetera. How do we stack up against other states and other regions? Are we going quicker than most places in terms of losing population? Well, there's a difference between um, the state and the region. So in terms of um, so St. Louis right now, we're the 21st largest metropolitan region in the country. There are only two other metropolitan regions that are in our predicament that are this large, and that's uh, Detroit and Tampa Bay. Um, we're, we're not the first. The first region to, to go into a demographic winter was Pittsburgh. Um, but there's, there are smaller regions in St. Louis. So we are, we are one of the big regions to go into, the, into this uh, demographic, demographic phase. And it's really been being driven by St. Louis County. Uh, it's the largest county uh, in the state. Uh, and the county, if you really look at the county, um, it's got demographic issues. It's, it's a very old county. Uh, the, 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 we have two regions, Kansas City and St. Louis, and they're demographically very different. Kansas City is very young. It's got a very large Latino population. Therefore, it has lots of babies being born. If you just look at Jackson County, if you remo- which is Kansas City, if you remove uh, the Latino population, Jackson County would be like St. Louis County, but it's not. Uh, it's got Jackson County has the largest number of Latin, uh, largest number of babies born in the state of Missouri, uh, beyond uh, deaths, and it's all driven by the Latino population. And so then you have St. Louis County, which has the largest number of uh, deaths relative to births, uh, and that we're on the, the St. Louis side. And so 
the two regions are, are in two different trajectories. Yeah, and when you look at the St. Louis metropolitan area, it's shrinking. You know, and that hadn't been the case. This at one time was the 12th largest metropolitan region yes. in the country, and now, we will, you, now we will, you say um, 21. Yeah, well, actually, we're going we're gonna to be surpassed by Orlando and Charlotte. San Antonio has already surpassed us, not yet, but they're, they're, San Antonio is the 18th largest region in the country if you just look at children under five. If you look at children under 18, they're larger than St. Louis. So they're going to be larger than St. Louis simply based on births that are going to happen there in the next few years. Then you look at regions like Austin, Las Vegas, Nashville, and there's a possibility that even Kansas City at some point around 2060 could be larger than St. Louis. Yeah, and, you know, this is, it seems like an intractable problem because as you begin to lose population, you're not replacing your population through the birth rate. And we're certainly not exactly a mecca of people transplanting here. Uh, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because now all of a sudden the kids that are born here, I'm thinking about, you know, my own kids, they grow up, they get out of college and the economic opportunities aren't here. And so they're gone. And, yes. you know, it's it's almost as if it's a spiral. Have any regions in the country kind of gone through this demographic winter and come out the other side? Uh, we're so new into this, uh, but when we look at the states, the, if we look at states that are in this, they're, they're, in, they're in it forever. I mean, if we look at West Virginia, we look at Maryland, uh, Maine, New Hampshire, they're in a, they're in a permanent demographic winter. And, and I always compare ourselves to West Virginia because Missouri, we're about 15 years behind West Virginia. And so if you, if you look at West Virginia and the problems that they have there in terms of an older population having to reduce funding to its universities, um, this is coming. This is coming to St. Louis. If you're paying attention to the news, you look at the challenges of Bon Bon at other universities of trying to recruit students. Uh, it's not that it's not that uh, these are not these are great universities. The students were never born. And this, let me just show you one one stat that I think will will um, impact you. We we look at cohorts. We look at population projections. So starting last, if you look at the graduating class last May of, of high school students, and you look at juniors, uh, sophomores, and freshmen, that's a cohort. The St. Louis metropolitan region will um, have 147,000 students who will graduate. Starting in 2041, that number goes down to 117,000. That's, that's a very difficult thing to think about if you're trying to grow jobs when you know that there's going to be 30,000 fewer high school students coming through the system, filling, filling jobs in Home Depot, going out to construction companies. We're just going to have 30,000 fewer graduates you know, yeah. coming out of high school. And it feeds on itself, Professor, because uh, the employers that are here need to find employees and they wind up going other places. I'm thinking about Nashville and Tennessee. I have to imagine that was a state that was losing population, but that trajectory is changing. Is that being done solely because of uh, the growth in the country music and entertainment part of the world, or are they also getting the immigrant populations that are helping grow that region? They have a very large Latino population. It's it's twice as large as the St. Louis. So they're, they're way smaller than St. Louis Metro, but their Latino population is twice as large as the, as the St. Louis Metropolitan Region. And the same with Charlotte. Charlotte, if you go back and hit, read the history of Charlotte, Charlotte made a determination that if they wanted to be a major metropolitan region, they needed, they needed a large Latino population. 
And so they actually went to Texas and to recruit um, Mexican workers to come to Charlotte. And now we look, we look 20 years later, and like, that was probably a pretty good investment that Charlotte made because it's, it, it's three times, the Latino population is three times larger than the St. Louis metropolitan region. And so we have to understand at the national level, 50% of the, nat of the population growth is coming from Latinos. They're, 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 Latinos are having a lot of babies. Let me give you one stat. In Texas today, every hour, there are eight babies born to a Latina compared to one baby born to a white woman. In California, that number is about 12 to 1. So there are babies being born in Texas and California. Wow. The question so, for us is how do we get them to come? How do we get these new yeah. Americans to come to Missouri to repopulate our cities? That's where I was going to go is obviously uh, Texas and border states are going to have a larger growth population there. Uh, Charlotte is an example. Are there any other cities that are successfully uh, making their regions attractive to uh, immigrant communities and as a result are growing outside of the border states? Yeah, so I look at, I think a, a city to look at is Oklahoma City. And I think Oklahoma City is unique because it's very close to Texas, uh, but they have a larger Latino population than St. Louis Metropolitan, and they're it's half the size of the region, right? But they have, Oklahoma City has done the exact same thing that Charlotte did. They have decided, both Democrats and Republicans at the local level, have decided the future of Oklahoma City is growing its Latino population. Because not that many people are moving to Oklahoma City, right? Uh, but Latinos are, because they, they want to live the American dream. Uh, and so they're bringing their families. And so if, this is the important part, that people are moving to St. Louis. Uh, they're moving to the county, they're moving to the city. But these are single people. What, what's happening in, this, in the region is that we're losing families. We're losing, we're losing young families. And so that, that's always difficult math when you replace a family with a single person. Yeah. Professor, before we let you go, uh, if we kept on this current trajectory uh, here in Missouri and the St. Louis region, what do we look like 10 years from now? I don't think we'll see too much. Well, I think for, for the region, we're, we're definitely going to be surpassed by Orlando, Charlotte, and San Antonio. We're, we're probably going to end up at 25, uh, 24, largest metro region for at least a decade. Uh, then we'll come Austin, Las Vegas, Nashville. We'll, so if nothing changes, we will not be a top 25 metropolitan region by 2040. That, I think that's pretty – if we just sit back and take a laissez-faire approach and let the market determine who comes in and out – we will not be a 25 top metropolitan region. At the state level, um, it is possible that Colorado and Maryland will surpass Missouri. I think if you think about politics and power, uh, Missouri will lose the House seat, uh, not, not in 2030. It'll be up in 2040, but it, if, if, nothing, if nothing changes, Missouri will lose the House seat, another House seat. That is Ness Sandoval. He's professor of demography and sociology at St. Louis University. Thanks so much for your time, Professor, and for your insight. When we come back after the news, Michael and I will talk about, is there a path forward here in St. Louis? That's next on X. It's men's Billikens basketball action tomorrow as they take on Illinois State. Pre-game 647, tip at 7. Hear the game here on your home for Billikens basketball. X. Welcome back to KMOX. Really interesting conversation we just had with Ness Sandoval, the professor of demography and sociology at St. Louis University, talking exactly, about the uh, uh, 
uplifting, wasn't it? No, it really isn't. A couple of interesting things to me. Uh, number one, I, I found it interesting that the St. Louis Metro is bigger than Pittsburgh's metropolitan area. Uh, I've been to Pet- Pittsburgh. It's a big downtown, big yeah. city area, but they just don't have the regional population that we do. But we're facing uh, now Orlando and Charlotte uh, getting bigger than St. Louis. And, John, you and I, the reason we wanted to have this professor on is we were lamenting the fact that, you know, kids are leaving. We've all watched uh, kids and grandkids go and take financial and uh, job opportunities outside of the St. Louis area. Wanted to understand how deep and bad it's gotten. And this is not just a St. Louis problem. It's a Missouri problem. Yeah, and and you're seeing it with you know other cities across the country have gone through this. You mentioned Detroit uh, being one that has gone through what we're going through, and a lot of similarities with Detroit, uh, the massive crime problems that, that existed there as as we have here. But it's much more. This problem is much bigger than the city of St. Louis. It's it's a regional problem. The, the metropolitan area here has has gone from 12th largest in the country to 21st on our way out of the top 25. And to hear him talk, it seems like it, the problem is intractable and that we're not going to be able to grow ourselves out of this unless something drastically well, changes. Right. And, we, you know, we spend a lot of time here in uh, St. Louis talking about that World's Fair. I don't know if you're familiar, John. We had a World's Fair here in 1904. That Scott we were, Joplin yeah, played it. Exactly. Fair. Well, that was at a time where the populations, uh, Irish and German and Italians, uh, we're moving heavily to the St. Louis area. Well, that's changed. Now the migrants, and migrants are typically the ones who multiply, uh, they're Latinos, and they've not made their way to Missouri or to the St. Louis area. There's some Latino growth in Kansas City. Kansas City's got really a, a good story going on right now in terms of growing population. Uh, but they're still kind of caught in this same mix because ultimately it sounds like listening to Ness Sandoval this isn't something we can just grow ourselves out of. We've got to allow and want to entice migrant populations to move to the region. I think that's right. Um, we're not particularly welcoming here, and I think that's part of the problem. Why? What house school did you go to? Uh, yeah, exactly. It, it, so, you know, there's a provincialism to St. Louis. It's always been there. And I think that's a, an impediment. Kansas City is a Western-oriented city. You know, there, there's more in common there with Kansas City, or with the Denver than anything back east. St. Louis is an Eastern-oriented city. And so those two cities are culturally different. But, yeah, and I, I, you wonder, and you look at the infrastructure that we've got here. He mentioned universities. I mean, you think about between Washington University, St. Louis University, UMSL, uh, he mentioned Fontbonne, Webster University, large footprint uh, south of here. And there, and there are others. You know, that infrastructure is good and solid. The problem is we're just not attracting people here. And the economic activity here is has lessened. The amount of uh, corporate headquarters that we has had uh, at one time has dwindled. Those things, you know, we've got to... If you're not growing, you're dying. Right. And that's kind of where St. Louis is right now. Right. But interestingly enough, some of the biggest and fastest growing cities in our country are in Texas. Well, they're border towns, right? I mean, they're a border state. And so you have Austin, Texas, you know, is is an enormous city. Dallas, Houston, Mm -hmm. San Antonio, uh, El Paso. Texas is booming. He mentioned that Charlotte had put a strong focus about 15 years ago to try to woo, woo 
uh, Latino populations, and it's been successful. It would be interesting to understand what type of efforts we're doing here in St. Louis to potentially attract some of that immigrant population. Uh, and those who have moved to St. Louis, what was the choice? I know we have a growing Latino population in St. Charles County. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested in what's enticing them to move to St. to the St. Louis area. Is it the uh, food processing plants that are being built? Or is it simply a second-generation migration from, hey, I lived in Texas and I wanted to go someplace else where I could maybe get more property for less cost? Well, you know, economic opportunity, available economic opportunity spawns growth. And it's almost a chicken and egg problem because if if you're not drawing people here, then the economic opportunities diminish. If the economic opportunities diminish, then there's less of an incentive for people to come here. And... So at some point there needs to be some leader plus crime. Well, crime, <laughs> but but just just the fragmentation of the way we are governed here is well, an impediment in and of itself. I mean, yeah. when you look at the little fiefdoms that we have, you know, let's say you want to come to St. Louis and you want to start a business and you've got between St. Louis City and St. Louis County, I don't know how many different sales tax rates there are, right. but it's crazy. You got the Cheshire Inn over here that sits in the city of St. Louis and St. Louis County. Its footprint laps over both. They literally have to have two different cash registers because of the sales tax rates are different from one end of the building to the other. I mean, that's right. the, the, and that's just a that's just a a, a sign well, of the fragmentation that we have here. 55 police departments, 90 some right. municipalities. And and most of our financial tools are being used to wage war against each other. Each other, yes. So we talk about Boeing and the incentives that happened, and I know that a lot of people were upset, but that is an opportunity that it's clearly going to bring new jobs to the region that weren't here before. But most of the economic incentives we see going on in our region, John, all the way from businesses to retail, is, hey, why don't you move from XYZ location in the St. Louis metro area to this location, and we'll help pay you to do that. Whereas in Austin and Charlotte and Nashville, no, they're not using it on as to steal from themselves. They're using it to steal from other regions. Right. And, and that goes to this governmental system. And, you know, you talk about having all those municipalities in St. Louis County and St. Charles County, for that matter. They've got to have economic activity and revenue that are going to pay for their services. So they wind up putting these sales taxes in. And it's just not what's happening in Louisville and in Oklahoma City. They've normalized this where they're no longer competing against each other, but they're competing globally. Yeah. And when you... The other problem that we have here is that the cost of our government, because we have all these different governmental entities, is off the charts compared to what it costs <laughs> in most of the rest of the country. Just just to fund a functioning government, we, yeah. we pay more here. I work for several businesses here in the St. Louis area, and it's amazing that just what a difference a mile can be. Yeah. So if you've got a facility and say, let's say you're in, you know, Clayton. Um, and a, a mile away in University City or, or Normandy, the building codes are different. The, the, the places that you can do, the way that the rules that you have to behave. So it's hard for a company that's coming to look in the St. Louis area that may wind up having multiple facilities. You're having to manage multiple sets of governments that just don't exist in other communities. Yeah, how'd you like to be a food truck? Yeah. I mean, you know, you're driving over here and you got the sales gotta tax get your rate. Permit there. Now you're going to sell your falafel or whatever it is over there. It's a different. It, yeah, it's it's 
confusing. It's archaic. The, well, you would never design a government like the city of St. Louis. If you were starting from scratch and you got a bunch of people get together and, hey, let's start a community, you would never set start a government that looks anything remotely like what we have here in the city of St. Louis. Well, we know what a lot of the negatives are, but maybe over the next couple of months we'll spend some time focusing on the positives. I'm interested in what a lot of the uh, immigrant uh, organizations are doing to maybe attract people to St. Louis. We'll get them on and talk about that. We'll talk about businesses that are relocating here. How can we leverage that to maybe resolve some of these problems? And then hopefully someday we'll fix some of these governmental problems. Uh, but, John, uh, you talk about problems in the world. The Middle East, uh, since the time of Christ, has been a problem. And, boy, uh, we're in the midst of a major conflict right now, but maybe some hope that we're going to have uh, a couple of hours to allow people to be able to get out of that war zone. Yeah, these four-hour pauses that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu announced the United States is encouraged for humanitarian assistance and to allow people to get out of what is now an active war zone. Uh, we'll talk about that next after the break right here on KMOX. Nearly a century of informing, entertaining, and serving St. Louis. KMOX. It is the Hancock and Kelly Show on KMOX. Uh, we're going to stick around at the start of the 10 o'clock hour. We'll join Amy and Chris. We're both excited to see Amy the first time I'm going to see her since she's been engaged. We'll spend uh, some time with them. We'll step aside. We'll come back a little later. John, we're going to join Kevin Wheeler later today on the Dave Glover Show as well. That's unbelievable. We and gotta, are they paying us for this? Yeah, of course they are. And then no, Sunday no, mornings at 830, oh. you can watch the Hancock and Kelly Show. Yeah. On Fox 2 right here in St. Louis, before you start your football viewing, why don't you kick it off with a day of Hancock and Kelly? Are they uh, still playing overseas uh, next I week? I think we've got our last overseas game going, and, and then we start to get back to uh, well, America. You know, we're getting close to the slide towards the playoffs. What's, wrong, what's wrong with playing in America? I, I like playing in America. Hey, that, by the way, yeah, uh, I think uh, Bibi Netanyahu's made a, a, a prudent decision to have these four-hour you know, lapses of hostilities to allow humanitarian assistance and to create more avenues for f civilians to get out. Yeah. I mean, I think there's general agreement well, by everybody that we don't like the loss of civilian life, and this is an opportunity. The problem, of course, is Hamas right. is using folks as human shields. Well, and they're tunneling under the hospitals that the uh, innocent civilians find themselves in. Lots of developments happening over there. Not only did Netanyahu say that he'd allow these four hours humanitarian pauses. Uh, he also says that Israel has no plans of occupying Gaza post-war, which is uh, important. That kind of goes to this two-state solution conversation that the whole world would like to see potentially take place. And uh, Anthony Blinken continues to apply his pressure on behalf of the United States, saying far too many Palestinians are dying in this uh, Israeli's uh, relentless war on Hamas. So um, we find ourselves at this interesting juxtaposition, John. I keep thinking about September 11th yep. and how we all felt in those months. Heck, we started a 20-year war as a result of what happened on September 11th. Uh, and, you know, the Israelis still uh, with so many of these folks as hostages uh, constantly getting bombarded with bombs, even during what was called peacetime, from uh, a lot of their detractors in the region. Yeah, and it's not just Hamas anymore. You've got all these satellites that are funded and financed by Iran that are launching missiles constantly. And, you know, we need to understand these terrorist organizations, these jihadist organizations, they 
they don't want to just be left alone and be free. It's so many of our kids are out there protesting. No, they want to wipe Israel off the map. And given the opportunity, they'd want to wipe us off the map. Uh, given the opportunity, they would like to see, they would like to systematically destroy Western civilization. I mean, that's what the ideology is that is informing these terrorist groups, and they are no different than ISIS was, than Al-Qaeda was. It is the same ideology. It is the same tactics. It is the same ruthlessness and barbarism. And we cannot allow that to stand in the world. You used a a line that I just can't get out of my head and I really liked where you talked about, uh, look, if Hamas, um, uh, if, if the Israelis set down their weapons, there's no more Israelis. Go, I don't yeah, well, I mean, if, yeah. so, yeah, if Hamas set their weapons down, there'd be peace. Right. If Israel set their weapons down, there'd be no Israel. The same is true in Ukraine. If the Russians set their weapons down, there would be peace in Ukraine. If the Ukrainians set their weapons down, there would be no Ukraine. And that's kind of how you figure out who the good guys are and who the bad guys are in these things. And, you know, all of this relativism that exists, like nobody's perfect. No country's perfect. No people are perfect. No government is perfect. But there is right and there is wrong. And there is no question, but in the conflicts in the world today, the right is is the province of the West, the United States, Israel, Ukraine, democracy, and the wrong are the instigators. We only have less than a minute here, but are you shocked? I think all of us are shocked by the death and destruction we're watching of innocent people, uh, which, by the way, is a byproduct of war, unfortunately. Yep. Are you shocked at the support and the protests that are going on I even was. here in the St. Louis area? Out in West County, they had yeah. one yesterday. I was initially, uh, but we've done such a, you know, job of of teaching people that the United States is, you know, was a founded in a wrong. It's illegitimate. We're we're all, you know, out there committing genocide. And and the kids are believing that stuff, and they're taking it to the streets. He's John Hancock. I'm Michael Kelly. We're going to step aside. We'll be joined by our good friends Amy and Chris right after this for the show on KMOX.